Now that true crime has become an obsessively popular genre, it is no surprise that when people find out we are forensic scientists, we are met with an outpouring of questions. Did you work that recent homicide? Yo, what does decomp smell like? You must love your job, huh? It's through questions like these that we have come to realize that you want more. I'm Bodine. And I'm Darby, and we are here to serve up the Coffee Talk version of everything you need to know about the science, laws, and people behind the yellow tape. Welcome to the Washoe County Sheriff's Office. Coffee with a Criminalist. Hi all, welcome to another episode of Coffee with a Criminalist. Hi Darby, how are you? Good, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, I'm even better because we are drinking uh, Ripple Effect, that's who's fueling this episode. They are a local company who does uh, cold brew. I am super excited for this one because cold brew is my favorite and this gets delivered right to your door. Yeah, so it's like less work, it comes right to you. Yeah, it's a half gallon jug and it's refillable. Yeah, so you can keep the keep the cold brew flowing. <laughs> keep it flowing. <laughs> uh, what I really liked about this company too is that their name stems from the ripple effect with kindness. Like when you do one nice act for somebody, it has a ripple effect and spreads to other people. So pay it forward, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. Pay the kindness forward. Well, on today's episode, we are discussing all things crime scene. FIS uh, is our topic today, and it's what listeners would likely know from the TV show CSI. It's like that group of people. But here at the Washoe County Sheriff's Office, we call it the Forensic Investigation Section. And from chatting with our listeners, we have come to realize that most people think that forensics and crime scene are kind of one and the same that most people would assume that we all go to scenes, and for some labs, that is actually the case, but here at our lab, they are separate. We have a whole section that is dedicated to working scenes and and then uh, collecting the evidence from those crime scenes, and then we have other sections that analyze that evidence, and those analysts are dedicated to their own specialties. A big reason for this is that crime scene work is very time-consuming. It is a 24-7 job. And it already has a lot of physical and mental stress from the high demand of the job. And so to add on top of that, all the forensic analysis that would be needed, it would pretty much be basically impossible to do it all. Yeah, and recently we decided to sign up to be helpers in the FIS section, which just means that we're going out and helping the crime scene investigators process their scenes. We're both really excited about this opportunity because it allows us not only to work with other sections in the crime lab, but gives us the chance to get out of the laboratory as well and learn new skills. Um, For example, we just did a training on their new scanners, which are really cool. We were both like super blown away about the technology and the capabilities of those scanners. It was just really amazing. So we're super excited about this episode and we hope that you guys are too. Here to talk about everything FIS is Sayer Dion Smichek. Well, welcome Sayer. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, you are so welcome. We're very excited to have you. I think that our listeners are gonna really love this particular episode. So thank you again. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) All right, to get us started, where are you from? Um, I was actually born in Connecticut in a small little farm town, uh, Bethany, right outside of New Haven, Connecticut. And uh, what is your educational background? Um, I have a master's of science uh, in forensic science um, with a concentration, a specialization in advanced investigation. And what did you do before working in forensics? Oh, where do I start? So, like most other master's students, I put my way through school bartending, slinging beers and waitressing. Um, I also, while I was doing that, worked at a few different labs. I've worked at a toxicology lab out in Southern California. 
I worked at a uh, lab in Southern California, also in San Diego, where we um, propagated yeast and bacteria for distilled spirits and beer and wine. Um, I worked at a, a whole body tissue bank in Rhode Island, um, where I was a lead technician in procuring organs um, and bones for medical research. And then right before I came out to Nevada, I was up in Vermont working at a small uh, cheese farmstead uh, producer. Um, and I was their on-site microbiologist uh, where I was doing DNA amplification of bacteria and yeast found in their milk and in their facility um, to be used in their cheese. Wow, Darby so, almost did some winemaking stuff. I did. <laughs> I was going to go into winemaking or forensics. So I was like, is this what you always wanted to be in was like the job that you are in now or? So my undergrad is actually in theater. So oh, okay. um, I I remember walking across the stage and accepting the the degree and shaking my dean's hand and thinking, what am I going to do with this? <laughs> And it was probably the next day that I literally was coming up with a plan B. And um, I'm, I'm a little bit older than a lot of the other criminalists in the lab here. Um, and so forensics and any mortuary sciences kind of was not a hot topic when I was in high school. Law and order was just ramping up as I was leaving high school. And so by the time I got through college, it was, it was the thing. It mm -hmm. was on trend and I remember thinking how uh, how interesting it was the psychology behind it and there was um, very similar uh, things between theater and and forensic science and I know okay. people are like what are those things <laughs> and, and, and for me it was just people and the story of people mm -hmm. um, and I'm a curious person so uh, I was like how how can I put myself in someone else's shoes? How can I help write the end chapter of their lives? And it, this was a great route. Um, and then science. I mean, who yeah. who, who doesn't love science? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so um, Well, now that you are in FIS, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your section, starting with uh, how many people are in your section? So there's six of us right now. Um, Five of us are fully trained. We have a, a newer person who started in the fall, um, and she's in the in-house program right now. So uh, it's a small, very small section with one supervisor, and um, we handle all of the uh, evidence collection, the identification, the preservation, uh, the documentation for major crime scenes. And how many scenes do you guys typically go to in a year? Um, I think they said, so, it depends if you're looking at scene by a location or a case. Oh. So we have a case, we can have a case and we can have 10 or 12 or one scene associated with it. So when we say scene, um, it could be just the autopsy or it could be the primary place where the, the crime took place. Um, and then the follow-up autopsy or the processing of the suspect. Uh, so. When we um, kind of, if I were to estimate where we are with scene work, so again, that's not just case work. Mm -hmm. um, we, I think last year, we were somewhere on like the 200s. Oh, wow. Yeah. And um, the FIS schedule can be pretty rough. So can you explain what that's like? And our follow-up question to that for you specifically is we know you're a mom. So does it stressful being a mom with this type of schedule? 
It's a brutal, uh, brutal schedule. Um, and if I didn't love the field or if you don't love the work you're doing, you wouldn't last very long doing it. Um, right now, with having five of us fully trained, we're on a two-week on rotation, two-week off. Um, and when I say two-week on, we're talking 24-7 on top of the 40 hours we work in the lab mm -hmm. as well. Um, so we, we, we try to schedule a year out in advance. And obviously, you've got camping trips that come up last minute or weddings or deaths of family members and those things. We, we do our best to help each other out in the team and get the, those times covered. Um, but being able to schedule a year out allows us to, to, to know what we're getting into and come up with a strategy. Mm -hmm. um, and so as a mom, I have three kids five and under and, uh, and my husband works full time as well. It's, it's tricky. It's, but having that headway or that, that, um, that long uh, planning period um, makes it somewhat manageable. Mm -hmm. Giving like our, your staffing levels and the scheduling demands, it's been rough in your section. Um, to combat this, the lab has instilled like we call it a helper program. Can you talk to us a little bit about this and how it helps you guys? Sure. So I think um, just to backstep a little bit, one of the things that's important to mention is that um, our crime lab, uh, and I, I believe it's been mentioned before, services a very large um, portion of the state, mm -hmm. all of northern Nevada. Um, so FIS, uh, the section that I'm part of, we also respond to those same, that same vast area. Uh, so 13 out of 17 counties here in northern Nevada, um, driving five and a half hours to the Utah border, four and a half hours up to the Idaho border. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, one scene can be taxing on, on our section if two of us are going out. So to help with the burnout, um, we've We've created a program where other criminalists within the lab, within other sections, have been trained on some, um, some of the things that they can do on scene to help us. Um, the biggest thing for us is using them as a scribe. And I, I know that sounds uh, simple, but we only have two hands. Mm -hmm. And when we're working with cameras and we're working with distometers and we're working with a flashlight all the time and swabs and doing latent prints, we run out of hands. So just having an extra set of hands from someone in the lab um, really, really helps out. Uh, and then allows one of our other trained members of our section, our FIS section, help with uh, secondary scenes or get a good night's sleep because you know the next day we're gonna get hit with something else. Mm -hmm. And Darby and I just signed up to be <clears throat> one of your guys' helpers. And so we are super excited and we're actually really kind of grateful for the opportunity just to get a look at what you guys do because um, we don't get that part of this type of work. So yeah, we're excited. Um, can you explain how it's decided that FIS will work a scene? So we have um, a kind of a general outline of what kind of calls we go to. Um, any homicide uh, we'll go to. Um, suspicious death investigation that includes infant death inve investigations um, or child death investigations we will go out to um, we go out to uh, we call them BDWs for short battery with a deadly weapon or ADWs assault with, um, with a deadly weapon and we'll go to those uh, if it's if it's severe mm -hmm. to where there might be a victim that doesn't survive it um, we go to high-loss robberies 
uh, bank robberies. And we will go to, uh, we'll help out with accidents, vehicle accidents. Um, we've got a couple pieces of equipment that help aid uh, our major, our, our mate team, our major accident investigation team here in town, also in Reno and Sparks. So we've been called out to scenes to help with those uh, accidents as well. And how does it get initiated? Like, does someone call Carrie or your supervisor? Like, how does the whole process happen? So I, I can't speak for what happens on the agency level. I'm not sure who makes that call. I don't mm -hmm. know if it's a detective recognizing that, hey, this is this is something that's going to be big, you know. Um, but they initiate it. So we'll, we'll, get, uh, we'll get a call from either dispatch from that agency oh. or our, our agency calling us. And, or we will get a, a phone call from a detective or a sergeant. Um, they'll call our on-call phone. So when we're on call, we have a, we have a phone with us okay. um, that we have to answer 24-7. And so we'll get a phone call saying, hey, we've got something going on. Um, and we try to get a, a quick briefing over the phone so we know if it's an inside scene or outside scene. We know what to dress uh, for the weather mm -hmm. and what, what we're kind of looking at. Um, so the call is usually initiated by the agencies. Got it. Speaking of the calls, how much information about the case do you get prior to showing up? So you said a little bit about like where you're at, but do you get any more information so you know what you're walking into or do you get very little information? It really depends on the scene. Um, I mean, there are times you walk in and you all you've got is we've got, you know, one, one decedent and a possible gunshot wound, but you have no other information um, because there were no witnesses or, um, or because the agency doesn't have any uh, initial information to work with. Other times we have a very, very good understanding of some of the circumstances that led up to the, cr the criminal act. And, um, and so it really, it just depends. Mm -hmm. um, I bet it can make things kind of interesting too, like depending on how much you know going in. And then also like a follow-up question that we have for this, is it difficult to determine what's part of the scene and what's just like everyday objects in the scene? And does the briefing help you with that at all? Um, yeah, so that, that, that could be, could pose an issue. Um, if we have something like a dig where human remains have been found out in, out in the, the wild, mm -hmm. um, we, we, have to bring some additional equipment that we don't have in our vehicles, our on-call vehicles already. So that kind of information is pertinent to um, the work we're about to do. Uh, as far as what's, you know, is that coffee cup in play or is it not in play? Uh, it's, it's helpful to have a bit of a briefing, but you have to be careful okay. because not all information you're given I mean, we're there to investigate. Right. We are there to find truth. So you can't just take things at face value and run with them. Otherwise, you are blindsiding yourself from something possibly else coming, mm -hmm. you know, coming from, <laughs> you know, like out a of bias the blue. Almost. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. Can you explain the process of working a scene? So things like fingerprinting, crime lights, diagramming, that type of thing. Right. So not every scene um, is going to work the same way. Uh, our, our work is very fluid. It's very gray. Um, and in sections like DNA, where there's a very, very strict protocol to follow, we use a lot of judgment on with our scenes. So one of the things we always do first is photograph, because you want to photograph 
um, the scene as you've arrived to it and before things have been moved or examined. You want to be able to provide that documentation of what it looked like when you got there. So photographs are always the first thing we do. Um, after the photographs, then we, by doing the photographs and walking around the area, we can start to pick up on things. Um, if we've seen um, weapons or uh, items of biological or DNA evidence, so, you know, red staining, which is, we call it red staining, it's blood, um, things like that. Uh, and, and so the other the other tasks we have other than just photographing and collecting of the evidence, we will do swabs for red staining um, if, if necessary, and also we call it residual DNA. So say someone um, entered a home and wasn't known to be uh, a person that frequented that home and uh, committed a crime and then left. If we want to, if we suspect they weren't wearing gloves, we might swab the door handles coming in and out of, of the residence um, for residual DNA. DNA technology has improved so much so that we can do more than just working with a red stain. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll do swabbing if necessary um, or if needed. And we can do uh, LPP, which is latent print processing. So if we're um, similar to DNA, uh, someone's leaving something behind their fingerprints, mm -hmm. we can dust uh, on scene for fingerprints. Um, we do a diagram with most homicides, um, not all cases. Uh, sometimes we'll be working a suspicious death, and it, as we're working the case, we discover um, either from the evidence that we've found or through corroborating um, statements with witnesses that it actually is not suspicious. And in those cases, we may not do a diagram, but in um, almost all homicides or officer-involved shootings, we'll do a diagram. Um, we used to do hand-drawn diagrams, now we do digital diagrams. But that's another big, big piece of the uh, processing of a scene. Mm -hmm. And um, our next question is actually about those new electronic devices. Darby and I have pretty much very little experience, but we got to see them in action <laughs> during our we training. We were so blown away that it was these 3D images and stuff. Like, and you guys have been doing this for however long, and it's you guys were just so like, oh yeah, it's what we do, and we were like, oh my god, we couldn't believe it. Like, you should tell everyone. So cool. Yeah. So, can you explain what the new scanners are, um, Leica scanners, mm -hmm. uh, to our listeners? Sure. So we got um, we got uh, the Leica P30, which is our bigger scanner. It's a digital scanner, um, and I, I guess I'm not. I don't get as like jazzed up about. I'm not a ga <laughs> I'm not a gamer, and so I'm just. I'm like, not either, but I thought it was phenomenal. And like the bird's eye view, yeah. you can like zoom in and zoom out, and we're just oh, we were um, the the scanner is pretty amazing. And then what you can do in the software, you can basically put yourself. In and walk through a scene, mm -hmm. and you could see the placards and the evidence that are within the scene. You can um, change the height so that you are the witness out on the balcony looking 30 feet down onto the scene. Um, so it's very new age, very, very uh, technically advanced. Um, so, anyway, so we stopped, we didn't stop, but we've moved from doing hand drawn diagrams where we're literally 
using a distometer and taking measurements of every nook and cranny in a residence or out um, outside mm-hmm. in, in you know a parking lot or in a field. And we are using a 3D digital scanner. So this Leica P30, um, we'll we'll put it down, and you know we'll adjust all the settings, and it will do a 360 and um, and and get all the measurements you need. Um, it will take photos if if you want. Um, it can do grayscale. It do, can do color, uh, and um, and it's very very fast so Mm -hmm. our medium format is a minute and 49 seconds holy cow so you're gonna do more than one scan though so i mean stitch it all together right right so in the software you need to be able to um and stitch is the the right word is stitch it all together so you'll do one scan and then if you're like moving down a road because it's like a car accident scene you'll move the p30 um maybe 50 feet maybe 60 feet and uh and take another scan Mm -hmm. and then another 60 feet and take another scan and then um those common areas you stitch together in the software so that the finished product is you being able to literally walk down the entire length of the road where the accident took place um so it's pretty amazing uh in the field how much time it saves um which is really great because we're usually working long hours in inclement weather um, with uh, emotional uh, taxation. Absolutely. Um, so it's it's nice on the front end how quickly um, it, it takes place. Uh, the back end, though, is v- very, very tedious. And time-consuming, I bet, putting yes. it all together. Yes. Mm-hmm. One scan with five – sorry, one, one scene with five scans can, can take a good 10 hours just to stitch. Wow. Yes. And I kind of, it, when I first saw it, it was kind of like when you take the virtual home tours. Like yeah. If you're looking in reality, that's kind of what I thought that's, of it that's, as. Yeah, that's exactly what it's like. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then, so you spend all this time, the scenes and stuff. What happens after the scene? Because your job doesn't stop. Right. So if we are allotted time for sleep, we sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and if we have to go in, it's, you know, it's a Sunday night and we work Monday. Uh, we work our scene. We come in on Monday. And... Um, the things we do back at the lab is we will um, finish the packaging and booking into evidence process. So um, not everything on scene is dry. So there are times that we have to hang evidence uh, in our special evidence drying cabinets, um, which is in a secured location. And we'll have to let those dry. And then maybe we'll want to refoto those if, if there were defects that we missed because of the condition they were in um, at the scene. Um, and then we will uh, book them into evidence, and then begins the the tedious process of report writing. Mm-hmm. So for, as I mentioned, a case is different than a scene. For every scene, every location we go to, whether it's a hospital or the agency where we're processing the suspect or the autopsy or the 30 other associated scenes, we have to write a, a report for. Um, and that that can be labor intensive as well. And can you explain how long a scene can take? Yeah. Um, so I've had a scene out in out by Ely, and um, it took me five and a half hours to drive out there. Mm-hmm. Then it took me six hours to process the scene, and six hours is actually um, a fairly 
uh, nice length of time. <laughs> length of time. Yeah. Um, it's, it's probably about average, I would say, for most of our homicides is about six hours. Um, and then I had to drive back another five and a half hours. So we are, you know, talking 17 hours uh, and then possibly having to go in and work the 10-hour the 10-hour shift. Can you explain a little bit about the relationship between the medical examiner's office and you guys on scene? Because you can both be on scene at the same time. Right. So when we are processing a scene and there's a decedent or, or decedents on scene, um, one of the last things that happens is uh, the medical examiner's office comes out. So we want to make sure we've gotten all our photographs. We've put down placards, and, and I didn't mention this before, but placards aren't used in every scene, but um, when they are used, it's usually a scene with um, either a larger scene, uh, larger in space, or larger in evidentiary volume, so um, more pieces of evidence, and we want to use placards to really highlight what you're looking at. Um, so when the medical examiner's office comes out, it is after we've done the photos, after we've done the placard, after we've done all the examinations like latent print processing or swabbing, um, and they will come out. And it's only then when we um, get a full visualization of the decedent. Decedent could be covered up by a blanket, and we it's not our jurisdiction. The, the decedent is not our jurisdi jurisdiction. It is the medical examiner's office. So that decedent will lay with a blanket and we will have no idea what the condition is of, of the individual until once the medical examiner is on scene. When the medical examiner is on scene, it's actually um, most often uh, an investigator who works for the Emmy's office. And they are tasked with also taking photographs. Um, they'll take some overall photographs of the scene, but more detailed photographs of the decedent on scene. Um, we will... Uh, or I'm sorry, they will bag the hands um, if needed and the feet uh, and um, and place the, the decedent in a body bag and seal it so that the decedent who often has physical or biological evidence on them is in a secured and um, clean, sterile environment. I have a random question I'm throwing at you on this one. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, growing up watching CSI, I always watched the interaction between the medical examiner and like the crew, the, the CSI crew, whatever. And does like declaring somebody dead happen at a scene? Is that not true? Like how you see on TV? Like how does that happen? So usually um, when a call comes in that someone's injured or possibly deceased, uh, there will be a first responder team that shows up and it's, uh, most often here in the area we call it REMSA, but it's an EMS, uh, EMT, paramedic, uh, AEMT, um, and it's going to be a paramedic or an AEMT that is going to make the time of death call. Okay. Um, if the decedent is transported to the hospital um, and passes away over on the way to the hospital again, it will be the AEMT or the or the EMT or the paramedic. Um, but once at the hospital, the doctor would make the call. So it's it's never actually the medical okay. examiner making the call because they're only coming out when there is a confirmed death. death. Okay. Yes. Um, and then you guys work with the Emmy's office for autopsies, right? We do. Yes. And can you explain that a little bit? Right. So um, for, I would say, 90% of the cases that we do go to, um, we will go to the follow-up autopsy. Um, and... Uh, our role there, again, is uh, collection of physical evidence, um, preservation of that evidence, 
uh, photo documentation and written documentation of that evidence. So at an autopsy, we are photographing, um, we are doing overall photographs of the condition of the decedent, the clothing they're wearing, um, and as well as being directed by the, the medical examiner, the forensic pathologist that is doing the examination. Um, if there's an organ that has sustained damage because of a crime, making sure we're getting overall, uh, not overall, but specific photos of that. Or if there's signs of natural disease, making sure that um, th we're getting the photos that are being directed um, for us to take. And a lot of people know like FIS works with decedents, but a lot of people don't know and or they don't realize is that you guys also process living suspects. Can you tell us about that process? Yes, so um, well, with all crimes there there there's going to be uh, at least two individuals. and um, in in the the world of FIS, we often get called to um, once an uh, individual is apprehended, we are called to then process the, the individual. And when we use the word process for an individual or a suspect or a witness even, um, we are typically going to the agency that's investigating their police department. They'll have an interview room or if it's a witness, they'll have a witness, um, a witness or family room. Um, and we are taking overall photographs, specific photographs of what they're wearing. Um, any injuries um, in cases of sexual assault, uh, which is another one I don't think I mentioned. Um, we do respond to sexual assault crimes mm -hmm. as well. Um, and those, uh, in those cases, there's um, uh, an additional process uh, or additional steps that have to be taken as well. Um, we'll take swabs um, of an individual and then fingerprints if needed. Uh, so yes, we, we are not only dealing with just decedents on scene or, or living victims on scene, but we're also um, working with witnesses, um, victims that are survived but are currently in the hospital getting treatment. We'll have to go sometimes and take photographs of their injuries um, as well as suspects in custody. And something that I have always really wondered about, um, when you guys are like on a scene, how do you guys deal with these long hours and where do you go to the restroom and how do you eat? Like, what do you do? So, so um, we, the five, the five of us um, have done it enough that we all have our own version of a, a jump bag. And our jump bag is where we keep um, extra layers of clothes. Uh, I keep beef jerky and nuts and bottles of water. So if, if I'm famished um, or uh, dehydrated, uh, I have a, suppl a supply of, of things to, to raid through. Um, we don't ever really get to pick where we're going. Mm -hmm. So we could be out, you know, out in the Thule's and there's not a 7-Eleven around the corner for us. So we, um, the five of us are, are very good about being prepared for uh, environmental conditions. But with that being said, um, uh, potty break, as my five-year-old calls it, uh, that, that can be tricky. Um, obviously, we're not using the restroom in the home we're processing, and we're not eating in the home we're processing. Um, so if we can take, you know, a short break and um, go down the road to the Walmart, you know, we'll, we'll go and use the, the restroom there. But there are times, like I said, where out in the middle of nowhere and we have to find the most discreet bush possible. 
Okay. So in other words, I'm packing some TP. Yes. Can I go yes. back? Yes. Gotcha. yes. Without giving us any case specifics, because that's obviously not allowed, um, can you tell us about the craziest scene that you have worked and what, what made it so crazy or bizarre or abstract in your in your personal opinion? So there was a, a case, um, I think it was one or two years back, and I didn't actually work the primary scene. I, I only had the autopsy, and it was came in as a suspicious death um, and ended up after uh, after gathering all the information from the processing of the scene and the autopsy and and just witnessed testimony that it was um, ended up being a natural uh, event in a man's life um, and he a natural death. Um, the the primary scene, I know it so well because it's so crazy. Uh, consisted of 50 or so uh, feral cats living within the residence. And the residence was a bit of a, I guess for lack of a better term, more of a hoarder's house. Um, There were actually holes in the walls intentionally made so that the cats could come in and out of the house and have a crawl space to live in um, while they were in that house. And we, we deal with some like stuff on scenes, whether it's, you know, bed bugs or lice or blood. Uh, This was having 50 cats running in and out of the residence. I bet added a layer of (laughs) chaos. Multiple trips the animal control had to make to come in before we could even, or my associates could even start on the scene. Uh, The photographs just were were a hoot to look at because uh, there was a at least at least a cat in every single every photograph. Photo. Yes. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so you never know what you're walking into. Yeah. See, so these things like cats, most people don't think of that as a challenge that you're gonna have to deal with when you go to a crime scene. But what are some challenges that you face that people don't even think about besides the cats? Uh, well, I mentioned bed bugs. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, Occasionally, we will get the heads up that um, this place, this house, this residence uh, was, um, and I'm not sure how they find this out, but is, I guess the health department is noted for having um, bed bugs. And that's when I'm running to my car and getting a hazmat suit. And mm-hmm. I am from head to toe in something uh, completely zipped up. But we'll have, we've had cockroaches on scene, uh, spiders. Um, dogs, uh, cats. I had a scene where the dog, and I've had I've had a dog that's had to be taken out by animal control because he was a very aggressive dog and would have hurt anyone going into that house. Um, but I've also had a scene where we had a dog, an older senior dog, and he literally sat on the couch and watched us process the entire Aww. scene. And was the sweetest, sweetest thing. Um, I just felt for that dog because what a horrible, yeah, a horrible, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yes, there's all kinds of things. Um, I mean, and those are just living things. You know, we've got rain and snow to deal with on top of bed bugs and cockroaches and cats and, mm-hmm. and maybe smells. Yes, yeah. Can you talk about smells. So, I the smells don't get to me as much, and I think it's partly because of working at the whole body tissue bank that mm-hmm. I worked at before coming um, out this way. Um, I I have the skill to be able to compartmentalize the smell <laughs> as well as what I'm seeing. Uh, and it's kind of that, it's like 
It's when you go into a restaurant and the AC's out and everyone's like, oh my gosh, it's so hot in here. The more you hear it, the more you recognize and feel it. Yes. So if I just compartmentalize it, I'll walk in. Yeah, it stinks. It's bad. It's a horrible smell. Decomp is a horrible smell. Um, Rotting blood is a horrible smell. Fecal matter is a horrible smell. But if, if I recognize it when I walk in and then I just let it go and put it in the back of my head, um, it stays out of my focus. I'm not going to lie. It's one of my biggest fears with the helper program. <laughs> so don't sign up for the summers. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> the summers in Nevada are brutal. Good to know. Yeah. Uh, do you find your job mentally or emotionally exhausting? Uh, both. Yeah. How do you cope with it? Um, it's, it's, it's tough. I think the biggest thing for us is that because we are, um, we are under uh, wraps with what we can say and cannot say, um, confidentiality. Um, we don't want to jeopardize the investigation. Um, I can't speak to my husband about it. You know, he sees what happens in the news, but I can't speak specifics or details to my husband. So, or my mom or my best friend. So who do you turn to? And luckily um, our team, there's five of us um, often we are helping each other with a case and um, there's overlap. So we do uh, a very um, casual debriefing after very difficult scenes. And it's usually over a cup of coffee or donuts or you know pastries or something. And we'll, um, we'll talk about the scene and we'll just check in. I think that the checking in is within our team is really, really important um, because these we're seeing things that um, I wouldn't wish anyone to see. So uh, it's, Im- it's important to be able to release and share some of the stress. Um, but on top of being physically exhausted from working a 12-hour scene, you know. Yeah, and I can imagine, at least this is me making an assumption here, that sometimes maybe the job feels a little surreal and that you're standing maybe in like someone's kind of worst nightmare or worst experience, but you're also doing a job within that. And you're also maybe having casual conversation with your coworkers. Um, does that ever change? Does it feel surreal forever? Like, like how is that experience? I think it's going to be different with, with everyone. Um, but I do think that if you've been working in the field long enough, um, that you, you recognize that you're doing a job and, um, not that you become jaded, but you're you're doing the work, and but you're also growing these relationships with the agencies you're working with. Like, mm-hmm. I am seeing this detective at like a, in a horrible situation in the middle of the night, in the freezing cold or the blistering sun, and we um, develop a rapport because we're working so close with mm-hmm. them. And um, so there is a general interest there. You know, there are detectives that I'm like, hey, how's your kid doing? You know, or, um, you know, what's what's going on with uh, schools with your kids with all the COVID stuff going Mm -hmm. on? So there's a general interest. And obviously, when you get to scene, um, you are like slowly getting caught up with what's what you're looking at. And then there will be a period where, I don't know, you're going back to your car to get more packaging evidence and you um, have some small talk or some chit chat with the detective, but it is, it is a very um, surreal and, and um, yeah, surreal, just out of this world thing to be like 
hey, yeah, I went to here for dinner last night. Oh, yeah, what'd you have? And there'd be a decedent. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not meant, um, it's not disrespect in any way. It's it's literally working with a team, working with people. Yeah. Um, and in some cases, it's coping mechanisms, mm-hmm. um, figuring out ways to, like, be objective. And this is a scene, so I'm handling this, but also recognizing that I'm working with people and it becomes your, your normal. normal. It is. Yes, mm-hmm. very much so. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh. You have made it to what we call the lightning <laughs> round. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> so our first question that we have for you in lightning round is, um, seeing what you see every day, do you still have faith in humanity? That's a, it's a really hard question, but, um, I'm more of a, I think I I just read it in a book somewhere. You've got your glass half full, your glass half empty. I'm just grateful to have the damn glass. There you go. (laughs) Okay. So um, I try to put a positive spin, uh, even in the most difficult and depressing and dark uh, casework that we're doing. I try to put a positive spin on it. Um, And the fact that I'm surrounded by my coworkers who are, also feeling the need to do this kind of work and not just my coworkers um, in FIS but my coworkers in the lab my coworkers within the law enforcement agencies my coworkers at the DA's office at the PD's office these are all people that are trying to um, flush out those stories uh, and and bring some closure to the family um, figure out what happened so I do have faith in humanity, the the good outweighs the bad. Yeah. Um, your next question is, do you take your work home with you? Um, I do. I try not to, but I do. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it's just giving my kids a bigger hug. <laughs> you know, as I said, we can't, we can't disclose any of the scene info to our family members. Um, but they, they know, my kids know when that, that squeeze is a little bit tighter. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it definitely comes home with me. Mm-hmm. What has this job changed outside of work for you? Ooh, that's another hard question. Um, I think just appreciation. Uh, you know, we we go to uh, most of the scenes we go to are criminal. Uh, sometimes there are vehicle accidents too, um, but things just can change on the, you know, drop of a hat. Um, and so just being appreciative of, of what you've got, of the life you have, of the family you've got. Um, I think it just, it, it's grounding. It, what it really is, is the job grounds you and reminds you how fragile life is and relationships are. Mm-hmm. And our last and final question for you, it's our favorite question. What is something that makes you smile every day at work? Um, so our work is dark. Our work is super dark. So to combat that in FIS, we prank each other. (laughs) Do you? We do. Um, not every day, but Mm -hmm. we do. Um, so, so the, I'm usually the prankster. Um, so there, there, those times, just the camaraderie, um, you know, we, we vent with each other, we grieve with each other, we laugh with each other, um, and we prank with each other. Uh, 
and, and luckily we know who whose desk we can't put glitter on because they'll have a fit but <laughs> we tailor our pranks to the the people that we work Person. with because we know them so well yeah. yeah awesome well thank you so much for coming to talk to us today we really enjoyed having you here thank you so much for having me well, thank you guys so much for listening to another episode of Coffee with a Criminalist. If you made it to the end, you are in luck today because Ripple Effect Coffee is offering our listeners a discount code for their very first purchase through them. It is CRIME, C-R-I-M-E, and go ahead and put that code in when you go to checkout and you will get 10% off your first uh, purchase through them. So thank you so much to Ripple Effect and uh, until next time, friends. Wash OS one. That's one. Go ahead. I'm Sheriff Darren Balam. Thank you for listening to another episode of Washoe County Sheriff's Office Copy with a Criminalist. This podcast is one more way our office is striving to build trust and partnerships within the community that we serve. To learn more about our office, please visit us on the web at washoesheriff.com. If you'd like to further support this project, click subscribe and be sure to tune in for our next episode to learn even more about forensics. Until next time, folks, Washoe, this is S1. I'll be 1042. Have a good night. S1, copy. Have a good night.